title of the message this morning is Jesus Wants to Make Disciples. Jesus Wants to Make Disciples. In 1 Samuel 16, we're told a story that was unfolding in the nondescript little town miles away from Jerusalem in a family who blended in with all the other families in Bethlehem. It was Jesse's family. In this story, we are told that the great and godly prophet Samuel is instructed by God to seek out the second king of Israel from among the sons of Jesse. Like the starting lineup announcement of a football team that we're familiar with on Saturday afternoons and Sunday afternoons, Jesse no doubt proudly introduced his sons one by one to Samuel, starting with the oldest and likely the most gifted and featured of his sons. And something unusual happens. Samuel, the old and godly prophet, is cut off guard by it. One by one, Samuel assesses each of the seven sons, and listening to the voice of the Lord, he concludes that none of the sons of Jesse who were present were to be God's anointed king of Israel. Samuel, and no doubt Jesse, had given too much credence to the outward impressions of his sons. But God had something else up his sleeve. God rebuked Samuel and told him that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And here in this simple ceremony, where the forgotten youngest son of Jesse is called from among the dusty pastures of the sheepfolds, we learn something not about David and not about Samuel, but we learn something about God. We learn that God is never more interested in what we have to bring to him than what he has to bring to us. God is never more interested in what we have to bring to him, what we have to offer him, than what he has to bring to us. God is the one who makes a man into something. God is one who makes man into someone who can do great things for him. If Jesus could pick men like these, these disciples that we're going to be studying about over the next several months, if Jesus would pick men like these, that ought to be a a real great comfort to us. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 1 as he greets the church in Corinth. He says, of the choosing of God of people who he will redeem and use for his glory, he says this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth." Now, the message, which is granted a paraphrase, not a literal translation, stretches out this to really unwrap and peel back any pride of any child of God. Listen as this verse becomes a paragraph in this paraphrase called the message. It sounds like this. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you were called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, 
not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. That's the message paraphrase of the Apostle Paul saying not many of the noble are chosen. Well, and from 1 Samuel, there in the choosing of David and Jesse's home, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these synoptic gospels, we see that this really is a consistent way of God in how he deals with men. God is never looking for someone who is great to do great things. He's just looking for normal men and women. Raise your hand this morning if you're a normal man or woman. Raise them. We all think we're normal and everybody else is strange. But needless to say, God is looking for people like you and I to use to do great things for his glory. Poverty, low IQ, terrible backstories are no hindrance for usefulness for Jesus Christ. The application out of all of this is that it is not what we ourselves are when Christ calls us, but what by his power and grace can make us to be when we take company with him. You say, I am a nobody. I don't know that God can use me. You're right on part of that. You are a nobody. But what we ought to do is we ought to crash the idols of the kind of God we serve if we think God can use a nobody. God cannot use a nobody. Because what we have just constructed is a God that is limited by only using great people. So we must shatter this idol because it's an unbiblical biblical image of who God is to say that we must be great for this great God to use us greatly. It just simply doesn't fit with how the Bible describes the way in which God works among men. Jesus shows us in Luke chapter 6 this. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 6, and we'll be reading in verses 12 through 16. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. 
Luke places this note here out of order for his own purposes, but we see something remarkable in the way in which Luke shares it with us. The disciples have already been following Jesus. There's already been 12 that have been, that have been around him by the time you come to Luke chapter 6 and you're reading. So this seems a little bit out of place. Luke, by the way, isn't very committed to editing his book in a chronological way. We must understand that, first of all. But secondly, Luke brings this to our attention to share with us uh, quite a few things. And I think one of those things begins with our, an understanding of, of this that like Samuel, who prayed for God's anointing, Jesus prayed for God's choosing. Like Samuel, who prayed for God's anointing, Jesus prays all night for God's choosing. And Jesus prayed quite fervently, we are told. In fact, Luke says that Jesus prayed all night long for the precise selection of the ones who God was going to use. We don't know all that the son shared with the father, but we do know the outcome. And the next morning, this ragtag group of rebels and zealots and sellouts and common laborers would learn of Christ and then be sent out to turn the world upside down by simply making disciples the way that they had learned to. If Jesus could turn 12 men like this into world changers then it was a prophetic picture of what he could do to people like you and I. If, people, if Jesus could turn fishermen and, and sell out tax collectors and nationalist patriotic zealots and bean counter accountants, if, if Jesus could turn these type of people into world changers, then what it means is that is a prophetic picture of his ability to change every one of us in this room into becoming used greatly as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And do you know that Jesus prayed all night long for you and I too? In Luke 6, Jesus prays like Samuel for the anointing, the choosing that God would have, but But later on, we're told in a later episode, right before Jesus heads to the cross, it wasn't here in Luke likely, but it was particularly in John 17. As Jesus felt the anguish of the pressing moments leading to his crucifixion, Jesus prayed not for the 12 only, but Jesus looked down with his prophetic lens, with his sovereign lens, he looked down into history and he saw you and I in an all-night prayer in John 17. Is Jesus interested in making disciples out of people like you and I, like he was with Peter and James and John in the company? Well, you better believe it. Jesus is still interested in doing that. He is still in that business, and he will be until the day he returns. And so he is separating souls from the world and to himself to bear fruit for his glory. This is his desire. This is what he has done to you and I. Now, in this sermon series, this new sermon series that we're in this morning called In Their Shoes, here's our goal. We want to see Jesus through the eyes of the original 12 disciples. And the reason why is because we want to learn what it is to learn Christ and to preach Christ to others like they did. 
We want to go back to the original pattern. We want to go back to the original mold and examine our lives under this and say, we want to see Jesus as he showed himself firstly to his disciples, and then we want to preach Jesus like his first disciples preached him. We want to live Jesus out, and these will become some of our pattern. So the sermon series title from, from now on until the Advent celebration will be called In Their Shoes. Because it won't be in their sandals so as to say that we just want to become these historic figures and imitate some of that culture. We want to be in their shoes so as we recognize God has done a saving and selecting and separating apart work in our own lives. We want to be in their shoes. And so it'll be our aim to shed all historic distance of, of those ancient disciples that causes us to think that we could never follow Jesus Christ like they did. We need to shed, shed that misconception and really that excuse. We want to know, is this Jesus Christ who we read about in the scriptures, especially in the gospels, is he still making disciples today like he did in the times of old? So we're calling this series in their shoes because we don't want this to be an us and them study. Well, that was them, and this is us. It's going to be far different for us. This is all about us, and it's all about Jesus. It's all about us. Let me ask you a question this morning. What difference in your life would it make if you knew that Jesus chose you to be his disciple? Well, a couple of the benefits could be that it brings great confidence in your life to know that Jesus set his heart, set his choosing upon you. It would bring great assurance on days of fearfulness and wondering. It would bring certainly great identity. It brings great security to know that I am, I am hidden, I am lost, I am embedded, I am engraved in his purposes in this world. Jesus didn't just see me in a crowd and say, follow me. Jesus, at the time in which I called upon him and his saving mercies, set me apart for the purposes of his glory. And it gives me great security that from that point on, everything in my life will have to do with his purposes of glorifying himself in my life. And by the way, lastly, it'll bring great purpose. You see, the selection precedes the purpose, but it speaks into the purpose. In John 17... We're total of this all-night prayer in which Jesus prays for, for you and I. It's called the high priestly prayer, and it's, it's just it's the moments before Jesus is led away to this trial. In John 17, Jesus is having this, just this intimate moment with the Father. In verse 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you might keep them from the evil one. He continues on in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Do you see the purpose there? We have the same purpose 
that Jesus had as his disciples. You want to know what the purpose of your life is? Not just some ethereal or just some some magnificent big picture purpose, but the day-to-day, moment-by-moment purpose of your life is intricately woven, is inherently similar. It is exactly duplicate to the purpose in which God sent his son into the world. It is to testify of the saving mercies, the ready heart of God to receive sinners when they will repent and turn to him. As I have been sent into this world, so, Father, send them into this world. The purpose of Jesus is the purpose of the disciple. This is your purpose. Have you gotten off track lately? Have you strayed a little lately? Have you wandered away a little lately? Well, Jesus prays that this purpose might be reminded, it might be reminded unto you this morning that you would recall the central driving passion that is placed into the heart of every follower of Jesus Christ, and that is to do the Father's will. And he continues on in verse 19, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And do not not ask for these, and we could say these twelve only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, brother and sister in Christ this morning, we are here because there was a faithful witness of these 12 and more, but certainly because of these 12. We are here because we have heard the faithful witness of their word and we are here because Jesus prayed it so. You see, Jesus wants to make disciples today like he wanted to make disciples then. And he was already already praying. He was already prophesying. He was already uh, ordaining it to be that you and I would be gathered here this morning and proclaiming the name of Jesus. And so in verse number 26, he says, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which with you loved me may be in them and I in them. And so Jesus has gathered to himself and he is gathering unto himself a people, ordinary people like you and I, who will hear the testimony of the word and they will be, they will be called out from among the world. So what difference in your life does it make if you had known that Jesus chose you to be a disciple? It brings great assurance. It brings confidence. It brings security and purpose. But let me ask you a further question. What does the prayer of Jesus, according to this prayer, do for the disciples? Well, as you see in this prayer, it isn't just a prayer of intercession. It is a prayer of commission. When you entered into the family of God, when you were adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ, reconciled unto the Holy Father, you were commissioned as a sent one. You were given a new task, a new purpose for living, And this prayer, what does it do for the disciple? It commissions and it determines. It determines that disciples will be made. Listen, this is the glorious, this is the glorious truth that empowers all of our missions. It is the glorious truth that inspires, literally breathes out power by the authority from heaven. It is the 
the accomplishment of your kingdom come and your will be done it is that Jesus has determined, he hasn't just guessed, he hasn't just made it possible, but he ordains the disciples will be made. And you and I get to enter into that. We are called into that. We are commissioned with all authority from heaven and on earth to enter into this glorious task of seeing disciples be made, seeing his will be done. And so it commissions and it determines It determines the disciples will be made. The the word will continue to be believed upon those who will believe in me through their word. When we consider the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples, we realize that there are two purposes in the choosing of his disciples. And this morning, then, there's just two purposes that we find in the prayer as Jesus prays that night before he chooses his 12 among the throng. Number one. He prays before the Father in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 18, number one, that they might be with him. That they might be with him. Some have suggested, and I don't think it's off target, that Jesus in his humanity desired company. He desired company for the times in which he would be weary. He desired company for the times in which he would be full of joy. He, did, he, he desired company for when he was ministering uh, miracles of mercy. He desired that company because uh, as God is relational, so Jesus is relational. And he desired that close human companionship in the belly of the, of the, of the ship on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the storm. On the night in which he was betrayed and he sweat great drops of blood, he said, could you not tarry with me in prayer? But here I have found you sleeping. Jesus desired this companionship, but this wasn't the only reason why Jesus desired that 12 would be drawn close to him. He desired that these 12 would draw close to him because he wanted to teach and to train men. This is what you have been called into in in your salvation. You have been redeemed. You have been saved so that you could be taught. And trained. And God is simply, and Jesus is simply following the pattern that is common throughout humanity, but especially the biblical account, and that is that there is an apprenticeship involved in our redemption. Like Moses would train Joshua, like Eli would train Samuel, like Paul would train Timothy, and perhaps if it would be Joseph. The father of Jesus would train Jesus to be a carpenter. This apprenticeship is what Jesus yearned for, and Jesus desires this of you, that he would train you, that he would teach you, that he would pour everything he knows about how to live a life of godliness into your life. Jesus desires to draw close to his disciples. Hallelujah, this is good news. Jesus is not afar off from any one of us and desires that closeness, that intimacy, that interrelational sympathy and laughter and joy and sorrow, all of life to be experienced by his side with him and desires to pour his very knowledge and his very understanding into us just like an apprentice. And so it's really just an apprenticeship. These disciples were drawn close to him to learn of Jesus because soon they would, be, they would need to carry out his work. Jesus wanted them to see what it's like to live 
all day long and all night long for the glory of God. So he drew 12 men into his closest circle, friends, and said, here's how to live day in and day out. Here's how to eat the meat to do the will of the Father. And Jesus desires that of you and I. 24-7 Christianity. A fellowship constantly unbroken. He desires to train us through those times. In every single moment, in the down times, in the up times, in the stressful times, in the peaceful times, in the times when you're laughing, in the times when you're crying, Jesus stays near to us and desires in those times, yes, to train us, to fit us, not to merely meet with us, but to meet with us for a purpose that equips us. You see, the end of the calling of the disciples wasn't only that they would be with him. And sometimes we love to linger with God. We love to worship God. We love to be in his presence and to dwell in in holy thoughts and in pure thinking and in righteous learning. Jesus drew these 12 unto him not only to be with him, but he called them for his second reason. And listen, by the way, we will spend all of eternity with God. But that is not the only reason why we will dwell eternally with the Father. We will also have a second purpose, not only to experience that that unbroken fellowship in, in time to come, but also to serve him unfailingly, to fellowship and to serve. And so the second intention that Jesus had for bringing his disciples close to him was this, that they might preach of him. Now, Mark records in Mark 3.14 this, this Luke 6 passage in a little different way. He says, and he appointed 12 whom he had also named the apostles so that, what is the purpose for appointing these 12? So that they might be with him. Now, we talked about that. And then he might send them out to preach. So with and then to preach. A Christian, we need to, to arise from our, our slumber. We need to arise from, from this lethargy of that it is enough to be with God. Yes, it is enough in sufficiency for our peace and our fellowship, but it is, it is not enough to accomplish the purpose for which he has sent us out to do. We are called to not only to be with Jesus, and that is in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, he says, I will be with you all the way to the end of the age, but I have given you something to do while you're with me. I have called you to make disciples. I will be with you while you're doing that. And so the second purpose of which he is, he is praying and then calling unto, unto himself as these 12 minutes, not only that they might be with him, but that they might preach of him. And so they were to learn of Jesus. And what they learned from him, they were to teach others. You see, simply, they they were not supposed to just stop with the learning. And we live in, in, in a world where we are just fascinated by information and knowledge. We, we exist, we live in a culture that has access and power like no other time in human history. And we have become information gurus. Our fathers who walked this earth before us 
had no idea how much, how much data and information, and by the way, a lot of useless information too, right? We love to consume. We are fat with knowledge. And by the way, often as Christians, we are fat with theology. And there's not an exercise of it. We learn, we learn, we gather, we, we learn, we want to have greater understanding of God, so we give ourselves to the reading, we give ourselves to, to, to healthy Christian resources and to godly teaching and preaching and training through podcasts and, and church attendance and other attendance, other events that is very helpful in conferences. But we gather all this in, and the disciples were to learn of Jesus, but what they learned from him He held them to an obligation that they were to take what they learned and impart it to others. And this is the calling of Jesus upon every disciple. There are times for fellowship, but these times of fellowship were just merely meant to prepare them for times of service. We need to share the stories among each other of what God is doing, both in our lives and others. And those times of fellowship are rich with many, many assorted blessings. But they are not the end of themselves in what Jesus has called us unto. Jesus has called every disciple unto serving. Because the word disciple doesn't mean fellowshipping. It means learning. It means a learner, and its most basic definition, it is one who takes it in. And Jesus says, you who took in truth, make others who will take truth into. Give them the truth that they will take in. Make them disciples. They eventually then would be called apostles. And Luke actually clues us in this already. And apostles just means sent ones. And this was God's intention. Listen, there is a progression of this. If you want to think of it this way, discipleship, then apostleship. That is, learn, then go. Or even learn while going. But we first learn Jesus before we share Jesus. We must first learn of him. That is, dig deeply into not just knowledge of him, but experience Jesus. Before we share of him. We must first be with Jesus before we preach Christ, but we must do both. Jesus was saying in John 17, even as the Father sent me, so send I you. Jesus is saying... I am the first apostle. I am the greatest apostle who has ever lived. I am the sent one. And I'm going to make apostles out of you. I'm going to make sent ones after after you. Listen, we have been called into fellowship and ministry in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be with him, and we are called to be sent for him. The story is told of a ship an old sail ship that came across another vessel out of the sea whose sails had been blown away and the masts were splintered and shattered aboard. On this one ship, they lifted their spyglass to their eyes and focused in on the battered deck of the shipwreck. From their vantage point, they could see no sign of life, nothing moving on board. The boat was sent out to investigate this shipwreck further 
And once they climbed aboard and on the deck in a huddled heap, they found one man with sunken cheeks and glass eyes and a frail figure whose bones were laying in a heap, almost ready to give in to the shroud of death looming over top of him. Well, they hoisted the starved man aboard their vessel and quickly escorted him back to their ship where they began to restore his health with food and water in good measure. As his consciousness returned and his eyes filled with the light of life again, he began to move and they huddled in closely to hear his faint whisper. There is another man. There's another man. The rescued man's first thought was of the other who still needed saving. There is another man. We're called that we might be sent. There's another man. The calling and the sending are two sides of the same coin. Every disciple of Christ has the calling. Every disciple of Christ has the commission of Jesus Christ on their life. It is unavoidable. It's unescapable. It's not enough to be comforted by the knowledge that we have been delivered. Everyone is commanded by Christ to bear the story of their rescue to others who will hear. Discipleship begins firstly with following, and then it flows into a fruitful life. Not service before salvation, not proving to Jesus that we're a worthy disciple and then he comes and saves us. Not a performance that leads to Jesus' apprenticeship or his acceptance, but it's first a decision of the heart to believe upon Jesus Christ beginning to follow him. And then the fruit is yielded. The following and the fruit, they produce, they shine forth a message. The following and the fruit preach the message. Jesus didn't leave behind a manuscript. Now, we have the Bible, but Jesus didn't sit down and write things out for us. but he left men behind. Plato had his Republic and Aristotle his philosophy and Shakespeare had his Hamlet. But Jesus, as far as we could tell in Scripture, only wrote one thing and it was in the sand to a bunch of a murder of crows, really, standing around an adulteress. And we don't know what he said, what he wrote in the sand. But Jesus didn't leave behind a manuscript What he did leave is he left behind men. And he did this on purpose that we might encounter and engage in truth in a very personal way that we can't relegate it onto uh, some sort of written handbook, that, that we experience the saving work of the cross in our own lives in dynamic ways. And as we experience this sanctifying work of the truth in our hearts, The world sees it and it sees all of our blunders, it sees all of our blessings, but it sees that our only hope is Jesus Christ. So men were Christ's chosen method to propagate the gospel and to build his church. Jesus poured into them all that they should know about himself. 
And this is, and it still is to this day, his method as he builds his church. He just uses people like you and I. Ordinary people who just say, I want to learn of Christ and everything I learn, I want to be faithful to impart to others. There's still another man. We are called to be with Jesus and we are called to preach of him. And this morning, here's a takeaway for us. If Jesus prayed to make disciples... Do you think that that ought to be a central passion of ours? If this was at the center of Jesus' prayer, that his disciples would make disciples, should this be a central passion of mine? If Jesus prayed that disciples would be made, do you think that we ought to pray that disciples would be made too? So here's a prayer that we could pray. Something like this, and I encourage you to take this thought, not necessarily these words, but this thought, and let it simmer this week. Lord Jesus Christ, I want to make disciples. I want my life to be the message of your saving power and grace so that others will follow you. Would you lead me to learn more of you, and to teach others everything that I've learned. Lord, please lead my path into someone this week and open my eyes that I can see that they are someone who needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then let me share with them what I have learned of you. Now, this sermon is not meant to be informational. Obedience unto this calling of discipleship and what the Word of God and the Spirit of God calls us unto when we see what Christ is doing is to say, this morning, will you pray? Will you become aware? Will you submit? Will you yield unto Jesus' commission on your life that what you learn of him, you will impart to others. Will you pray that way? Will you live in such a way this week that you learn of him, you're with Jesus, and you preach of him to anyone who will listen, whether it's a struggling, struggling believer or an unbeliever or a growing believer whether it's a child or an adult, a coworker, a friend, or an enemy, what you learn of Christ, will you be a disciple and make a disciple? Well, let's pray.